Why don't the new Avengers wear bowler hats? Answer me this, answer me this Can I be the guy from Blue Velvet and purr through the slats? Answer me this, answer me this Well, here's a mixed blessing, listeners. Uh, I'm starting the episode slightly lost for words. Helen has just shown me a video which has uh, shocked me. It's shocking, like, say, they edited together all the gory bits of all the Saw films into one. It is is the gastronomic human centipede, too. Yes, actually, that is a very good description of it. (laughs) Because you remember last week, uh, listeners, we mentioned... The uh, pizza crust stuffed with a hot dog. And then one of our listeners piped up on Twitter saying, do you know, here in the Middle East, we have something even more depraved than that. (laughs) And I was kind of hoping for a hot dog stuffed with pizza, but it wasn't that. Dare to dream. Hmm. No, it was a pizza that kind of looked pretty, like a passion flower or something, but was actually surrounded by burgers baked into the crust. It's a bit like the film Alien, if John Hurt was a pizza and the Alien was a burger. (laughs) And there were 12 of it. Yeah. It's a bit like a savoury simnel cake where each of the burgers is an apostle. Anyway, thanks for alerting our attention to that, I guess, but it has slightly knocked me for six. Well, here's a question about foodstuffs from Joy from Northern California who says, Ollie, answer me this. Mm. Why is there so much buzz about Greek yoghurt all of a sudden? What? (laughs) What's the big deal about cannabis? <laughs> Why is everyone wearing belts this year? Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber, wherever I go. I hear it's better for you, says Joy. But why is it better? And is this just a ploy to boost the Greek economy? Well, look, OK, we're laughing at Joy's innocence. No, I'm laughing because it's a funny question. It's a funny idea that suddenly Greek yoghurt is all the rage. Yeah. People are like, oh, it was Tamagotchi and then it was Pogs and now it's Greek yoghurt. <laughs> but, I like the fact that it's quite solid. Because Joy is writing to us from Northern California, we should cut her a bit of slack because actually, believe it or not, sales of Greek yoghurt have increased from uh, $60 million five years ago to uh-huh. $1.5 billion today. Wow! And that's because uh, one of Turkey's biggest dairy farmers oh, right. went and set up shop uh, in uh, New York and apparently all the supermarkets in the States didn't have Greek yoghurt before. They said American palates only wanted sweetened yoghurt. Oh, right. Wow. And now it genuinely is the big thing in Northern California. So so when, no, but when you say it's the big thing in Northern California, you mean it has proliferated across the yoghurt-eating parts of the United States. Yes. It's not that Northern California is yeah. this enclave. It's not, not the going, epicentre. Well, I've heard if you smear it on the roots of the redwood, it grows <laughs> twice as big. <laughs> but if that does encourage tourism to Greece, then the yoghurt could save it. Yes, it's true. If you get on the American map... I mean, look at Scotland. Oh, I mean, yeah, their yoghurt has really boosted the economy. <laughs> no, but the, the fact that a lot of Americans have Scottish heritage well, and therefore go and visit Scotland. Yeah, and Ireland. Like, there's nothing wrong with Scotland and Ireland. They're both very beautiful places, but they're not especially beautiful compared to the rest of Europe. It's just that Americans go there, right? If yeah. you can do that with Greece, what a boon. Do you think Turkey's a bit pissed off to have missed out on the action if it's a Turkish company? No, because it's a Turkish company. And so, they're I mean, like, they're we don't want the all those laugh. American tourists yeah. coming getting in the way. <laughs> exactly. They're getting the best of both worlds. They're getting you... a lot of money to their economy through the company itself. You stay next door where we can't see or hear you. <laughs> Hi, Helen Ollie. This is Hannah from Milton Keynes. We were at another friend's birthday party and we got talking about Arab straps and we wondered how it came to be called this. So, Helen Ollie, answer me this. 
Why is an Arab strap called an Arab strap? Right, I'm just going to come out and say this. I don't know what an Arab strap is. But you do know the Bell and Sebastian album, The Boy with the Arab Strap. Yes. And, and you I've do know the gloomy 90s band Arab Strap. Sort of. I remember that they exist, but yeah. I couldn't tell you a song by them. That's because they all sound gloomy. Fine. You're not a gloomy man. I'm not. No. I was listening to Disney songs. <laughs> 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 but I am a big fan of Bell and Sebastian. Yes. Um, and I've noticed that they had this reference to a thing that I didn't know what it was. It but... was the band Arab Strap that they were referencing. Oh, was it? Apparently they were friends and then Arab Strap were like, what are they playing at? This is shit. Oh, that's so Bell and Sebastian and Meta, isn't it? That's why I haven't looked into it, because I wasn't interested. I just like the songs. Don't even care what you're doing with the lyrics. I know you think you're being clever. (laughs) I just like the twee stuff. All right. (laughs) Um, So I've noticed that I have this hole in my knowledge... And I, I, I didn't want to look into it because I reckoned it would probably be... Because you love the be... holes in your knowledge. Well, so what make you, you, that's the right. elaborate doily that you are? Just, just, <laughs> <laughs> just battling through life. I don't want to be just a circle of paper. <laughs> a unique and beautiful snowflake. That's right. Um, so uh, I'm not sure I want to know because you I don't... reckon it's going to be something horrible. Yeah, you don't want right. to know. Because okay. here's a rule. Uh, I'm going to call it Zaltzman's third law of 21st century life. Mm-hmm. A band whose name you do not understand is probably named after a nasty sexual practice. Okay. And uh, Arab straps allegedly is a kind of sexual aid in the mode of a cock ring, but with some kind of extra leather strapping. Uh, I'm really trying to visualise this. I don't want to visualise it because, you see, I do not want to corrupt my internet history to this extent. <laughs> uh, but I understand that it is uh, to make your performance last longer, as cock rings apparently do. But you should not wear one for more than 20 minutes because that can cause you permanent damage, leading to necrosis of the penis. Now, why oh, didn't Bell and Sebastian call that album The Boy with Necrosis of the Penis? <laughs> <laughs> It turned black. So uh, from what I can glean without uh, taking moderate safe search off Mm. is uh, that this was either named after a device for the mating process of the Arab horses, which were a very valuable sort of horse, or it was more general allusion to the fact that Arab horses were so wild they required quite a lot of restraint of their bodies, not just their penises. So what I've noticed is that horses quite frequently seem to be walking around with what, uh, in gentlemen's parlance, we would refer to as a semi. I wonder if when you're studying a horse and you haven't got time to wait for them to get aroused, presumably if they've got that semi-state, you can grab it at that point and use the Arab strap to create an impregnation. Now, I'm wondering whether it's just that horses find you quite sexy, but <laughs> not quite enough. I'm not sure enough. what to make of me. Yeah. looks a bit like a horse. Which end is that? Head or ass? Here's a question from somebody calling themselves Rowan from Glasgow. They've asked us to conceal their identity. They say, I share a flat with a bunch of other people and one of my flatmates has begun to induce in me such ire that I'm not sure what I can do. Wow, that's very poetically put. The guy that's inducing the ire wants to be a comedy writer. Okay. I don't find him very funny and he's so desperately keen to be thought of as funny that if you ask him a question his face contorts and he's struck dumb for at least 30 seconds as his brain whirs through the options for a sarcastic humorous response that is what all comedy panel games on telly would be like if they didn't employ program associates they didn't edit down from three hours to 28 minutes that's what it would be just a lot of ian hislop looking blank (laughs) that's just the way his face is But there is another part of this that really, really annoys me. Okay. He writes, inverted commas, funny articles for various websites, mostly on page, but hey, he's trying. Okay. And he tweets his witticisms constantly. The thing is, Rowan explains, he tweets my jokes and my funny things that I say as if they were his own. Okay, interesting. 
He does this all the time. He often sits in the living room as we're watching telly, laptop on his knees. I say something funny and he tweets it as his own observation. <laughs> Sounds oh. like one Ollie man here. Hello. <laughs> oh, uh- Go on, Helen. Would you care to vent? That sounds like a specific instance you're referring Sometimes to. Sometimes I'll just say a quip. You know, they flow out of me. And uh, Ollie says, are you going to use that? If not... <laughs> well, OK, but I, I am imagining this is the nature of this question. I think that's reasonable if I've asked you. Yeah, but the public don't know that it was mine. There should be attribution. But anyway, we'll continue. He's never told me about this or credited me. This bothers me. I don't want to be a comedian, particularly but the things I say are mine and it's oddly galling to have someone trade them off as his own. Yeah. I don't want to confront him because I'm shit at things like that and will probably cry. <laughs> Maybe you should think up a joke that he's like, oh, I'll have that. And then he suddenly realises the meaning is stop stealing the things that I say. That sounds like quite a complex joke. Yeah. Well, even if he acknowledged that he used my words verbatim for his material as though they were his, I genuinely don't think he would understand why I didn't like it. Mm. So Ollie answered me this. Am I just being silly about this? No, I don't think so. I think you've got a point there. Um, but I do think Rowan's phrase, I don't want to be a comedian particularly... Very revealing, isn't it? Quite revealing. Well, maybe I would if I was asked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I am... Obviously, someone finds me funny. Maybe other people will find... What if he gets like, this amazing career on the basis of his tweets and I haven't got it because he's stolen if, Yeah. But if Rowan really had no desire at all whatsoever to enter anything remotely to do with comedy, then I don't think they'd be so concerned. You would just think, this guy is a real sad sack not to be able to think of funny things himself, because if he can't, then he's not going to make it as a comedian, because as soon as he has to do a stand-up set of any length, he's going to be screwed, right? Or you'd think I'm helping him by contributing him and furthering his development as a writer, even though I find him incredibly unfunny. Um, so I, I, I think the fact is, Rowan... Maybe you should have a cold hard look at yourself here and think, actually, you know, one of the reasons it's galling you that he's getting presumably some acclaim for some of these phrases because you're saying that you don't find him funny, but obviously he's had some positive reactions, otherwise he wouldn't keep doing it. You are finding that quite galling because you are thinking, oh, maybe I've got it in me to be a funny tweeter. Maybe I should set up a Twitter account and tweet the things I say just before I say them. (laughs) And then maybe just ask him to just retweet what you've tweeted. That would save him a lot of time. Yeah, and then that would make it very clear, wouldn't it? But to me, it sounds like Rowan would not be satisfied with these solutions. Rowan wants this situation to stop and therefore the solution would be, Rowan, stop saying anything interesting in his presence. Just be really, really boring for about six months. That will break the habit. Or if you get on with this guy apart from this habit, maybe start doing a podcast with him because then he'd be forced to think of things to say spontaneously and you would get to say your things that you like, oh, well, I probably don't want to be funny in front of people. <laughs> if you got a question, an email a question to answer me at this podcast to googlemail.com and submit this podcast to googlemail.com And submit this podcast to googlemail.com And submit this podcast to googlemail.com Here's a question from Kat, who says, I like a lot of people, what's the Grand National? Horse murderer! After the race, Claire Balding said to one of the jockeys post-interview, I'll leave you to go and get weighed now. Um, I, <laughs> I, I bet she didn't say it in quite as jolly a way as that. I, I'll leave you to go and get weighed now. That's a better impression, Helen. I can't really do Claire Balding's voice. Well, you sound more like her than John McCrick, which is Great. a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you to go and get weighed now, and then I'll eat a pig's ass. Kat says, I understand that jockeys have to be light, but Ollie answered me this. What difference does it make to weigh them before and after the race? 
Surely the winner is the first over the line anyway. Why, oh why, do they do this? <laughs> the winner's the first one over the line, but if it emerges that they're the first over the line because they've been chucking weights off the horse whilst yes. they've been running, then that's quite a big issue. It's a little bit cheaty. Yeah, so that's the reason. But it, you're right to say that that's more tradition these days than anything else because the way they weight the horses now is in such a fashion that it's very difficult to shed that weight whilst you're actually on the horse. Mm. But the thing that a lot of people don't realise is, so the race is fair, mm. every jockey plus horse is carrying the same weight. Amazing. Oh, so so it doesn't matter how like the jockey is really, they make up the difference with weight so that every horse is carrying the same weight so no one has an unfair advantage. But that's amazing, if, I didn't know that. No, I didn't. But what if one horse is a lot bigger and stronger than another horse? Well, that's fine. Um, and that's part of the sport, isn't it? But, they, yeah. but they'd make sure there's no unreal advantage of having a light jockey on top of the strong horse. Uh, I, I wish they'd go back to some of the deceit. It's like people baking <laughs> conkers in a microwave. You know, it might not be fair, but it adds an interesting element of surprise. But that's not to say, of course, that jockeys don't uh, do all sorts of things to try and lose weight themselves. Apparently, jockeys spend hours and hours in saunas just before their race. I heard that. Do some of them try and have massive shits as well? <laughs> you would think, wouldn't you? Do any of them shave their heads surreptitiously after they've been weighed the first time? Well, you do wonder, don't you? There must be some tricks that go on. But then if you're winning because you've cut your fingernails whilst you're on the track, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it seems quite unlikely. To be honest, if, you get, if you're winning because you've cut your fingernails whilst riding a horse at speed, you deserve to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, we've got another question about horses, unbelievably, uh, in this equine special. It's from Richard, age 26 in London, but from Bristol. It's an important distinction. He says, I am... This is in capitals, that's why I'm shouting. I'm sorry if it offends your ears. How can you tell the difference? I am fed up with police on horseback. Running me down for all my terrible criminal ways. Yeah, how many times do you see that in London or in Bristol? Well, you see it on mm. the mall. Maybe he lives in Wembley Stadium. <laughs> uh, maybe he lives opposite Horse Guards Parade. Maybe, maybe. maybe. In a kettle. Uh, as far as I can see, they only serve to slow traffic. Quite an important point in policing, I would think. There you are. And poo on the street. Probably not a key point That's in policing. That's community policing. Yeah. Uh, is it even possible to arrest someone whilst on horseback? Have you ever seen them do this? Well, just because I haven't seen something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I've never seen South America, but I believe in it. <laughs> he says, I can see the argument that the public find it a bit of a novelty. Oh, yeah, it's all about pleasing the public, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it makes our police more visible and gives them a better vantage point. Correct. Those all sound like solid reasons. I think yes, you're answering your own good. question here. It is important to have uh, an eight-foot advantage when you're trying to scope a crowd full of ruffians. Uh, but if that is the objective, Helen, answer me this, why not just have police on stilts? Well, it would be a lot cheaper. It's not a rave. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot easier to move on a horse than on stilts. I don't know if you've ever tried, but horses are a lot better at walking and running yeah. than stilt walkers. Isn't it about pacifying crowds, though, as well? Oh, it has many functions, Ollie. But yes, that is one of them, because I think people are naturally disinclined to mess with a horse. Exactly. It's not the horse's fault, is it? Even if you disagree with the police presence, you're not going to take it out on an animal. Well, also, horses are big. They're quite threatening when you come up to them face to face because they're big. And also, they can kick you in the face. That's right. And unlike a police person, they're unlikely to have to... Uh, say sorry mm. for clubbing somebody with their own hoof yes that's right also what's clever is they can do that thing where if you've got a line of police horses they can all just turn nose to tail yeah. and then block the crowd and it's much friendlier and actually quite delightful to see than police standing there with battering rams yeah and oh. shields yeah and, and what is a civilian sort of fun event yeah and they can get around places where vehicles cannot so if the police have to travel at speed mm. plus scattering a crowd horse is a better job if it's 
not roadworthy conditions. Yes. I mean, I always find them a reassuring presence if I'm going to a concert or something like that. That's when I see them in big, like, you know, at Wembley or something oh, like that. Oh, but it's annoying when you're standing behind them. You can't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Jubilee fireworks begin for the Queen's very special day. Red, the colour that has meant so much to Her Majesty. Ah, that's pretty. That's gold. Representing the Queen's favourite song by Spandau Ballet. A Catherine wheel there, there's a warning from history. The answer me this jubilee. One hour of right royal fun. Available now from iTunes. Another completely ridiculous question about food. Awesome. Uh, it's from Ed from Leeds. Uh, he says, Helen, answer me this. Do Mexican people actually eat nachos? That's not that ridiculous, actually. Of course it is. No, it's not. Why would you dream that up? Because, say, a lot of people in China probably don't eat things that are very familiar to us from Chinese restaurants here, but are fake Chinese foods. Yeah, but the base stuff they eat. Like, they might not have exactly the same recipe for ribs, but they eat ribs. I have a colleague from Mexico City who said that she'd never eaten a burrito before she came to the UK. They just don't have them in Mexico. That is interesting. What are the true Mexican foods? This is what I'm interested in, because in the States, where Mexican food proliferates in a most wonderful way, but it's a very limited number of dishes, and frankly, most of them are permutations on the same very few ingredients Mm. just different shapes or slightly different order of cookery yep so i can't imagine that the uh, entire mexican populace subsists only on these but i have heard that mexicans do eat nachos but really they were popularized in texas but they were invented in mexico in a town called piedras negras which is just over the border from eagle pass in texas Uh, and this is the year 1943 ollie a good year for snack foods and you know, um, when you talk in the present tense like that, it freaks me out. I'm just like, shit, we just travelled through time. <laughs> Don't do that to She's me. She's doing a woman's witchcraft again. Cue the mariachi music. <laughs> I, know, I know it helps focus the mind, but when you say that to someone like me, I really get very freaked out. Uh, <laughs> just, just, just keep it as what happened in 1945. You don't mind. <laughs> On that day, a bunch of ladies came in after a shopping trip. They were from Eagle Pass in Texas, but presumably they'd popped over the border for some cut price things <laughs> or drugs. Yeah. And they popped into a restaurant called the Victory Club and uh, it was closed. But its owner, Ignacio Inaya, thought, I'll rustle them something up out of what's left in the kitchen, which was essentially tortillas yeah. and cheese. Yeah. And he thought, oh, I'll stick it under the grill to make it a bit more exciting. And thus, the nacho was born and they're named after him because uh, the sort of diminutive form of Ignacio is nacho. Okay, so it was four American tourists. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because I guess that would give some legitimacy to the argument that it's not really a Mexican food, it's a Tex-Mex food. Well, also, they were using a cheese from Wisconsin. I don't think I actually realised until you just said. I know that they're called tortilla chips, I'm going to sound like an idiot, but I don't think I realised that tortilla chips are actually grilled, like soft flour tortillas that you can turn into hard tortilla chips with the magic of grilling. I don't want to upset you, but if you put raw pasta in boiling water, <laughs> it becomes the soft kind that you eat. Yeah. You know, you don't have to buy toast ready made. And if you boil crisps, they become a delicious porridge. <laughs> it's Kieran from Frackleton in Lancashire. Helen and all answer me this. What was the first musical performed in London's West End? Is there some kind of criterion that ought to be applied as to when the West End itself began? So it's not like, well, of course, when the monks gathered to sing madrigals in what was pre-Cambridge Circus in 1268. Yeah. 
Um, actually, there's not too much dispute about when the West End began, um, because it's all to do with the monarchs and which of them supported the theatre. Uh, right. So after the interregnum, you can say there was a West End, because mm-hmm. since then there's been theatre, even though it's been censored and stuff. What's the interregnum? Between the two kings. Oh, right. It's like Cromwell. the boss, yeah. but for the monarchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're Cromwell a boss. Um... So there's not too much dispute about that, but I suppose there might be some dispute about what actually constitutes a musical. As and therefore it gets to a bit, just well, a play with some songs in like they often had. Well, or opera, which obviously they had for centuries before mm. they had musicals. That's like a musical with the fun taken out. I am accepting Gilbert and Sullivan to be oh. the beginning of the modern musical. Yes, well, okay. I think there's a reasonable thesis to be written. I, yeah. Yeah, I'm bored with that. I, I get that they're kind of light operetta, but I think you can clearly see the the, the through line. Light operetta begat musicals. Begat things like Noel Coward, which begat things like Andrew Lloyd Webber, yeah. so then you can see that. Okay, so let's say it's Gilbert and Sullivan, and then it's quite easy to answer because they had a special theatre built for them, the Savoy Theatre. That mm. was to house the Doyley Cart Theatre Company. Oh, wow. So that was built in uh, 1881, um, but of course they were famous by then so they'd obviously had a few hits in the West End before they had a special theatre built for them so I'm going to go for and if any students of musical theatre want to correct me on this feel free HMS Pinafore oh. by Gilbert and Sullivan 1878 If only the West End had maintained that quality for the last 130 years Hi Ellen and Ollie my name's Seth from Newcastle I'm currently sat in bed just painting my nails and it just occurred to me my partner's playing on the Xbox in the other room and he's playing, um, I think it's called Battlefield with his friend. Tell me, Molly, answer me this. Why do people have such a big problem with the partners playing the Xbox? It's perfect time to chill out and play, and like do your nails, read a book, and just have some peace and quiet. Is there anything wrong with that? You're right. You're absolutely right. You can have such wonderful leisure time when your other half is absorbed in a shooty game. I hope, Sarah, that your other half does appreciate your tolerant attitude towards his Xbox time. Martin. Hello. Are you um, pleased by my tolerance of your PS3 habit at the expense of our discourse? You're quite bitchy about some of the characters and the games I played. Why don't? are they such dickheads? And why do they all walk funnily? And why are their clothes so brown? You're very because rude Martin's about playing them, obviously. He <laughs> <laughs> chooses all that in the Avatar stage, don't you know? You're very rude about Kratos, who, uh, who oh. after, after all got suckered by the Greek gods into killing his wife and child. Well, he is a plum and if you do make me watch a plum for eight hours a day i am going to bring it to the attention of the room i think what you're listening to here listeners is what happens to a relationship actually when the other half doesn't do as sarah's done and go into presumably a different room to paint her nails i'm not allowed martin's like i don't like being in the room on my own it's a communal activity to, to... And I need someone to drag me to safety Medic! i've often marveled at the fact that you can sit quietly in the corner planning my own death whilst martin is playing very loud and obtrusive computer so game. Why loud. don't you have separate rooms? What's that about? Because he won't allow it. Well, I like having the company. You've got all the company of your imaginary friends on the game. I've got a lovely blue girlfriend in one of them. <laughs> Hello, my name's Matt, and I'm from Sunbury on Thames. I've just been clearing out my garage, and at the very end of the garage, I found a vase, a very tall vase, and at the bottom of the vase, lying dead, was a tiny little mouse. This has horrified me that the mouse must have fallen into the vase and therefore struggled there for a long time, figuring out a way to get out before ultimately succumbing to its horrible death. Unless it sort of fell and knocked itself out, in which case we can assume it had a fairly quiet and painless death. Yeah, or unless it was a suicide attempt, which... I don't think it's very common amongst mice, but I suppose it's possible if your garage is particularly awful. So, Helen and Ollie, answer me this, because it is troubling me a lot, and I'm finding it hard to concentrate on anything else. How long would it take a mouse 
lying at the bottom of a very tall vase to die. Consensus on the internet seems to be that probably about five days to die. I don't want to traumatise you even more, Matt. Five days? Because a human being only lives about that long without water. But apparently mice don't need that much water. They're an animal Uh. that barely needs a lick. But who's done these experiments to see how long a mouse lasts without water? They've done everything to a mouse. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But, Matt, you can comfort yourself with the knowledge that this mouse died in the best place possible in a vase in Sumbrian Thames the home of a massive antiques fair yeah. so you could take that vase to the antiques fair complete with mouse get some money for it make, nice make the mouse's life worth something I saw an incredible vase actually at the Sumbrian Antiques Fair it was a miniature ceramic toilet why? I don't know it had actually what looked like appropriate holes for plumbing so maybe it's not a vase it's now being sold as one, but maybe it was originally for a pygmy. Right, here's the thing, Matt, in Sunbury on Thames. Yes. You wouldn't want this mouse actually running round your house, would you? Unless you're some would sort of you? crazed mouse fan. It's safer in the mice in every room and thinks they're cute running along your beams. So you'd probably, if this mouse had come into your living room... Want Smashed it, it with a brick. Exactly. And actually, if you're the kind of person who gets all like worked up and upset about mouse rights... Yeah. You're probably the kind of person that would get a natural mouse death machine but none of which actually are as nice as just letting it slowly rot to death in a beautiful vase yeah enjoying the artistry exactly well here's a question from fabian from bristol who says ollie answer me this when did steve jobs start wearing his trademark black polo neck and jeans combo and how did it come about this is a good question this has been answered very recently in the biography Uh, it was a famous designer wasn't it yeah, it was Issey Miyake. Really? And he was yeah. in Japan, wasn't he? He went to Japan. To Who's it. answering the question here, Martin? Oh, right, is sorry. it me or is it you? Sorry, yeah. Someone knows yeah. a lot about Steve Jobs' fashion choices, Martin. Um, what it was is, uh, as Martin suggests, Steve Jobs visited the Sony factory in Japan in the mid-80s, according mm-hmm. to the biography. To nick some industrial secrets? Probably. Um, <laughs> no, just to try the sushi, Helen, obviously. And he thought, those black polo necks they're wearing look a bit better than these quality seconds ones I have on. I don't, I don't think they wore black polo necks in the Sony factory in the yes, mid-80s. Yes, they did. I think they had a specific uh, outfit that had been designed for them bespoke by Issey Miyake, obviously yeah. Japanese designer. Uh, and he looked at that and talked to Issey Miyake about doing something similar for Apple employees. Now, ironically, because nowadays if you ever meet anyone who works for Apple or Google or any Silicon Valley company, they all walk around exclusively with t-shirts advertising products that they've made. <laughs> the Apple employees didn't like the idea of wearing a uniform at the time. So it never got off the ground. Bloody hippos. Uh, so he was like, oh, what am I going to do with these 2,000 <laughs> Isimiyaki polo necks I've got? Well, I'll just wear them till the end of time. If, if I wear one every day and then throw it away. <laughs> yeah, well, more or less, actually. It didn't happen right then. Um, this was, like I say, in the 80s. It wasn't until, as far as I can work out, the early 2000s that he actually commissioned the black polo neck. Mm. But he'd had a friendship by this point with Miyaki. And over the years, they emailed each other. Uh, and so that's kind of how that happened when he did decide to get himself an identical outfit. Do you and think he just reached a stage of his life where he's like, I just want something that I don't have to think about each day. I'm very busy designing the future. Do you know what though? I never really thought Steve Jobs' outfits were that great because I don't think black goes well with the kind of medium pale denim that he favours. Yeah, I agree the combination was odd. Mm. Uh, Levi's 501 in that kind of pale blue and then the, I think it was brown New Balance sneakers as they <laughs> call them in America. Should have worn all black, shouldn't he? 
like he's yeah. doing a puppet show. You or, know, when they when they have the, like the fluorescent things on their hands. But that would get really difficult at the keynotes because no one could tell it. It'd just be a disembodied head floating above an iPhone. <laughs> it would have been better if he'd replaced his face with a big apple, like a Magritte painting. <laughs> it was Paris in the spring of 1898. Two children paddled gaily in the Seine. One giggled like a girl, the other was a girl, and their names were Olivier and Helen. Time for a question from John in Atlanta, who says. I am an American aircraft enthusiast. Does that mean he is an American person who is an enthusiast of aircraft or he is only an enthusiast of American aircraft? Uh, The former. I'm a keen fan of aviation history, aerobatics and the like. This interest has led me to recently partake in the more geeky side of this hobby and attend the odd air show. That sounds like the fun side of the hobby. What, the odd air show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Planes that have got five wings. Yeah, burlesque dancing. <laughs> um, especially the free air shows held at many of the nearby US Air Force bases in my area. Right. This summer, however, I will be in the UK on business and have decided to take the plunge and attend the largest such show, the Royal International Air Tattoo. Yippee! Yeah. Uh, While I'm very excited to take part, the name perplexes me. So, Helen, that's right, it was a question about etymology all along. Oh, you really blindsided me. (laughs) Helen, answer me this. Where did this nomenclature come about? Royal, Uh, international, uh, air. No, I think we all know he means tattoo. Helen means why is it called tattoo? Uh, And is it used for this one event, or are there other such air shows that are also partial to the usage of the word tattoo? We've both heard the word tattoo used before because I'm guessing you agree with me on this, the Edinburgh military tattoo. Yes. That's the biggest tattoo I've heard of. And it's not a big tattoo like all of someone's leg. No. It's it's different. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than anything on Jodie Marsh. It's the size of a stadium. It's pure coincidence that the word tattoo as in the body art and the word tattoo as in display of... Military military percussion instruments. Yes, uh, sound the same because tattoo as in the body art came from a Tahitian word... Tattoo. And then uh, the other one came from two Dutch words. Tap, which meant, you know, the tap on a beer cask. And uh, toe, which meant shut. And what it meant was that the beer casks were going to be shut off and it was a time when the people went out with their instruments to make a noise to tell everybody to go to bed. Why would you shut the beer cask when there's music going on? It's the exact opposite of what happens at the Carling Academy. So it was a signal played at the time when they wanted the soldiers and sailors to stop boozing and go to bed so that the next day they wow. could fight. Ah, uh, okay, in a military context, I'd forgotten, of course, that we're talking about military stuff. Yeah, that sort of does make sense, that you yeah. play a loud, noise, rousing round yeah. of your national anthem and then say, right... To sleep men. So, so beating a tattoo is a sort of a drum yeah, pattern, Yeah, so it's a drum it? beat. But the, the sort of ex, uh, exhibitions, if you like, of military might, those are one step removed from that even, aren't they? How because so? it's not just drums, it's, it's formation marching and planes flying and all this kind of well, stuff. Well, it is now, yeah, but they didn't have planes back in the 16th century or whenever this word came about. Like kites then, whatever they had then. Seagulls. Because I've been to the Edinburgh Military Tattoo and I'm guessing, from what I know about your love of military things, that you haven't. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, it's an amazing spectacle uh, because people come so from... So was Starlight Express yeah. to those who appreciated <laughs> that sort of thing. Yes, well, you know, it's like Starlight Express was to roller skates. The tattoo is to bagpipes and guns. Um, um, right, it certainly sounds like something that I should not miss. No, but there is some there is some genuinely very cool stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed is that generally speaking, the other stuff that's happening, the acrobatics, the cannons going off, the fireworks, even the uniforms to an extent, they're really just there to remind you 
that the people that you're watching playing the music have a military background that they're trained soldiers and this is something they do on the side and they could kill you with that <laughs> well kind of because otherwise they're just professional entertainers aren't they if you go and watch mm. the tattoo and you're watching the Russian Air Force playing songs by the Beatles and on then doing ukulele, a dance off <laughs> you might kind of forget underneath it they're well hard underneath it they are pure killing machines that's right well there you are that brings us to the end of this week's episode a kaleidoscope of questions as always everything must end must it not um, yeah, don't, get, don't get depressed about it Helen oh I know but it's a whole week until there's another episode so I'm feeling a little bit maudlin yeah I know but unlike the futility of life and all of our relatives who will die we'll definitely be back this time next week yay uh, so if you've got a question <laughs> for us let's hope so you can, let's you hope can, one of us doesn't perish horribly you can phone or Skype or email it to us and all the details about how to do that are on our website answermethispodcast.com where you can also find links to our apps our Facebook our Twitter and also the latest episode of Martin the Soundman's The Sound of the Ladies podcast yeah that's a music podcast there's all kinds of music on it well there's not there's not all kinds of music on it is there there's one kind really yeah I'm quite and a diverse time no, you're, very diver- you're very diverse <laughs> within a very limited I've got a Rebecca Black on a banjo you know that was good actually yeah it was quite good but we're just saying you didn't, do a, you just didn't do a hip hop version that's all I'm saying no pleasing some people isn't it I'm not complaining I'm just you know trades descriptions I'm not complaining because uh, I'm not sure that race relations would recover from Martin trying to do hip hop song but anyway give that a go and please do return next week for more Answer Me This bye, bye. No, no, no.